If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 26, I want to talk to you today about the victory of faith and worship. The victory of faith and worship. And 1 Samuel 26 is longer than the two previous chapters, and we're not going to read it today. I know you've been very patient in letting me read a lot of Scripture. We're going to read some of it, but not all of it. So let's begin reading in verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to verse 17. 1 Samuel 26 and 1, And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Jeshimon? And what transpires following that is the account of Saul with 3,000 men coming again to take David. If you recall, he has previously promised that he will not do this again. And the Ziphites, for the second time, are betraying David. This is like deja vu all over again, as they say. (laughs) And here they are doing it again, betraying David. And of course, the Lord is not going to allow David to be betrayed into the hands of Saul. And Saul comes. Saul makes camp in this area. Saul goes to sleep. And while Saul is asleep, David and one of his brave men sneak down into the camp of Saul. And as they are sleeping, David removes the spear and the canteen or the cruise of water that was by Saul's head in the midst of these 3,000 men. That's pretty brave, isn't it? (laughs) And of course it says that a deep sleep had fallen upon these men from the Lord. The Lord was keeping them snoozing. And so David gets the spear and he gets the cruise of all, uh, the cruise of water, after the man that went with him says, let me kill Saul. You remember that happened in the cave where the men of David said, kill him. This is the Lord delivering him into your hands. Well, once again, the Lord has delivered Saul into David's hands. But this time, the young man with him says, let me kill Saul. And David says, no, the Lord will take care of Saul. He takes the spear. He takes the cruise of water. He goes back out far away, but, but close enough to yell at them and they could hear him. And then the last part of the chapter is David with the spear of Saul and the crews of water yelling back to the camp and saying, see, the Lord's delivered you to me again. I could have killed you. I could have slain you and I didn't. So that's what happens in verse 17 as we pick up. David is shouting back to the camp of Saul after he has been right there standing next to Saul while he was asleep. And Saul knew David's voice, verse 17, and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? Here he goes again, coming to his spiritual senses. And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore doth my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in mine hand? Sounds very familiar to what David said when he came out of the cave. Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord have stirred thee up against me, let the lord, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men that have stirred you up against me, which that is the case here, cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, 
For I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. It's deja vu all over again. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. Remember, Saul is shouting this in front of his 3,000 men. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear. He holds up the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and fetch it. The Lord render to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life, David's life, be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation, troubles. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Go with me into the next chapter. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. Is that true? There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in, the, in any coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. Don't, don't be too hard on David. David has lived in such a way and had to deal with such things that sadly drama has become the norm of his life. Dysfunction has become the norm of David's life because he's been on the run. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's the way it is in a lot of places today. People have become so used to dysfunction that they think that is living in the functional. They become so used to the dramatic that they have no idea what living a non-dramatic life is like. We are living in a day, an age of just constant drama. I've even read that it's cool among the younger folks to actually have problems. Like, you know, there's so-and-so with his issue or with her issue. That that's become a cool thing. Sadly, that's where David has gotten to. And it's not necessarily David's fault. But you see what this is doing to him? He is gradually slipping back into some very dark places. You know, he's been asking the Lord for help and guidance, and now he's deciding himself, well, maybe it would just be best for me to go back to the land of the Philistines. Do y'all remember the land of the Philistines when he went down there and almost got killed? The Lord delivered him, of course. The angel of the Lord's presence delivered him. I believe it was the Lord Jesus Christ that delivered him. He went down there before, and now he's thinking about going again. Why? He's weary. He's tired. And he's been betrayed again and again and again. I'll mention this in a moment, but the Ziphites were his own cousins. They were his own people. When I was in high school, I know y'all can't believe this, but I would sometimes run my mouth like I should not. I just know y'all can't believe that. It's hard for you to believe that saintly brother Tim, you know, just said things that he shouldn't say sometimes. So I said some things that I shouldn't say one time when I was in high school. And the word of that got back to somebody that didn't like it. And so that somebody that didn't like it was on the lookout for Brother Tim because he wanted to punch him in the nose, you know. I know, this is, I know y'all think I'm just telling a tale here. And so on one particular Tuesday night after we had practiced football in the afternoon and we went to the junior high football game, and I was with my little group of guys that we hung out with, great group of guys, still great to this day. It was four or five of us, and we were walking in the junior high football game, you know, and the boys were out there playing, and, you know, we were the big men on campus, you know. And so as we walked along in our little group, 
this fella that sort of had it in for me, he comes up to me out of the blue, right there in front of everybody, and he's nose to nose with me. When you walk out of that gate here tonight, I'm going to take care of you. I'd never been confronted like that before. I was a little sweaty and nervous. And I stood toe-to-toe with him, and I don't even remember what I said. I probably just went gulp. And so then he, he got out of my face and went on about his way. I didn't back down from him. I don't know if that's good or bad. It's probably bad, but, but I didn't back down from him, and he went on his way. We had this little stare off, this little face off, and I looked around, and all my buddies except for one were gone. <laughs> they had just casually walked on away when they saw us. And I looked around, and I saw that one friend of mine. And I, saw, I thought, well, there's a fellow right there that won't betray you. Now, it's not that they betrayed me. They most, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and think, well, maybe they didn't know everything that was going on. But when I turned around and I saw my friend who was still standing there a foot away from me, right beside me, I said, there's a guy that'll stand with you through thick and thin. It made me feel very close to him. It made me feel connected to him in a special way, even though the other guys probably didn't even realize what was going on. Have you ever been betrayed? We've all been betrayed in some way or another. It could be as, as simple as saying, hey, I'll meet you, I'll be there for you at this or that or the other, and then you know something comes up that you didn't even plan and you're not able to go. I mean, that's a mild form of betrayal. And then there's very, very deep and hurtful forms of betrayal. You know, that can happen in the covenant of marriage. Spouses can betray one another in horrible ways. Business deals. I see that all the time. There's lawsuits because somebody agreed on this side to do this and somebody agreed over here to do that and they didn't do it. And there's betrayal there. You know, betrayal is just all around us. What about politics? Well, that's just the game of betrayal, isn't it? But it hurts to be betrayed. It hurts to have to deal with disappointment. You know, it can be, as, as I said, it can be as simple as somebody being close to you and then they just pull back. That, that's a form of betrayal. <laughs> May God bless us as, as sheep of His pasture to never betray one another. It's not going to hurt you to continue to love and care for someone, even if you feel like they may have slighted you or may, maybe feel like they've pulled back. It's not going to hurt you to love God's sheep. You say, well, I just don't feel it anymore. I just don't feel like it. Like Brother Luke was just preaching. We don't want to live our life based on our feelings. That's for sure. We want to live our life based on the faith that God has given us and the worship of the Lord. That's the victory that David has through all of these betrayals. And I dare say that nobody's been betrayed like David was. Again and again and again, he's been betrayed. Listen, just take a little bit of stock of where David is right now. Out here in the hill of Hakalah, in the area of the Ziphites, who are his cousins in the land of Judah. Just take a little stock of this. Now, from a natural standpoint, I don't know if you realize this or not, because I tend to think in compartmentalization. Okay, well, you know, just a, a couple years have passed here, and one thing's happening after another. But if you kind of stretch your mind out and think about it practically and reasonably, you know, it takes a long time for 3,000 men to travel, you know, 60 or 70 miles. It takes a long time for David to go from here to here to here when they don't have trains or cars or planes. So a lot of time has passed since David faced off with Goliath. I think it's very safe to say, based on where we are getting to in the life of David, that at least 10 years have passed 
So all of this that we've been looking at has probably taken place. Well, I know it's taken place from the time that he's age 17 down to age 30 when he takes the throne, when he actually physically takes the throne. So in between those 13 years, all of this is happening. I think about 10 years is a safe guess right here before David makes the huge mistake of going back to the land of the Philistines. And over that 10-year period, let's say David from age 17 to 27, Year after year after year of hiding out, camping out, staying on the run, wondering where their food was going to come from, being betrayed. Naturally, David is approaching the age of 30. He's an outlaw when he used to be an in-law to the king. You say, what do you mean he used to be? You'll see. Hiding in caves and forests. He's been the victim of a forced divorce from Saul's daughter. If you read the last couple chapters, you'll see that Saul married Michal off to someone else. And that was David's wife. The king forced a divorce on David. Now you may say, well, losing Michal was not that big of a loss. But at the same time, David was not privy to that. He was not in on that. Saul forced a divorce on his former son-in-law. And he's been betrayed again and again. That's naturally. Whether you realize it or not, that's going to wear on someone. It is just wear and tear and friction and drama and dysfunction year after year. Ten years, maybe. Now take stock of where David is spiritually. Spiritually, at age 27 or so, his family is safe. Because you remember he put them over in Moab so nobody could touch them. His men respect him, his 600 men. He has the prophet of God. Gad, you remember? The prophet came to him. He has the priest, the single lone priest that was left after Saul destroyed the Levites. He also has Abigail as a wife. She's a wonderful blessing to his life. Remember, she was married to Nabal and Nabal died. God speaks to David through the Urim and the Thummim. You remember that? Through the breastplate of the priest. He has asked breastplate questions and the Lord has spoken to David. However that worked, the Lord has spoken to him and God has delivered David just umpteen times, multiple times. And there's been a few times that God has delivered David from himself. You remember David decided to go down to the Philistines and he acted like a madman and scrabbled on the door and spittle went down his beard. God has even delivered David from himself time and time again. David is the anointed king, even though he's on the run. And in the midst of all of this trouble and drama and dysfunction, some of the sweetest psalms that you've ever heard in your life, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are born from the afflictions of David. I wonder if later in life, when things had kind of settled down for David, if he didn't look back and in some strange way, I mean, nobody wishes for afflictions and troubles, but you know that he sat down at some point and he looked back and he thought, you know, God was sure with me through all of that trouble. Do you ever do that? Do we learn those kind of lessons from our afflictions or do we grow bitter. You know, we don't want to grow bitter. We want to grow better, right? That's the theme of the book of Hebrews is better. There's a better way in the New Testament. There's something better than the law. There's a better sacrifice. Christ is better than the Old Testament law. There's something better. And let me tell you, there's something better than bitter. But a lot of people just grow bitter from their troubles and their afflictions. What have we learned from our afflictions? Child of God, if you've learned to Look to the Lord in faith, in the faith that God has given you. And if you've learned to cling to worship, faith in God and worship, that's how David was able to make it through these afflictions. And he wasn't perfect. Now, I don't like afflictions. 
I don't like trouble. Does anybody, you know, raise your hand if you love afflictions and you love trouble. Oh, yeah, let's talk afterwards if you raise your hand. Because you, you may need to, you know, have a little one-on-one -on -one counseling. Nobody likes afflictions. Nobody wishes. You don't pray, Lord, send me afflictions. Lord, just send me some afflictions. I, I just need to grow better. Brother Tim said, I'm getting bitter. I need to get better. So you don't have to pray for afflictions. They're going to come. You don't have to pray for that. And please don't. But if you look back on your afflictions as David did and remember how God was with you in the midst of them, you can grow better and not bitter. There was a time here in the past when I was at a low point. And for those few days, the only prayer that I could pray, the only prayer that I could even drum up in my mind was help. You ever been there? Help, Lord. I don't really know what to say. I don't really know what to do. But Lord, just help. I'd been out on a run that morning. Actually, let me be honest. I went out on a jog that morning. Running for me is over, but jogging is still on the radar. So I went out for a little jog that morning, and when I got back to the house, and there was a four-wheeler trailer sitting there, and I just kind of recovering from a jog. I just sat down on that trailer. I had my phone with me. I set my phone down beside me, and I just kind of lowered my head, and I said, Help. Help, Lord. Help. And about that time, the trailer started going, zzz, zzz. Well, it was my phone. And I looked down, and, and my phone was ringing right as I was saying help. And lo and behold, the phone said, Dina Whitehead from McClenney Church. It was Sister Dina calls me from time to time, and, and she'll listen to the podcast, and she'll tell me to pass a message on to Brother Luke or, or to me, and she'll say, I enjoyed this. And, and so I thought, well, Lord, that's, that's a funny answer right there, you know. Instead of dropping down from heaven in chariots of fire, you know, you just sent Sister Dina to give me a call. And so we had the best conversation, the best conversation. And she was calling about rejoicing in some message that she heard here at Bethlehem. I don't remember if it was Brother Luke's or mine or both or whatever, but I thought, man, what an answer to prayer. If you think the Lord is not looking and listening, then we just, we're shortchanging ourselves. We just maybe need to cry sometimes, hell, what are we learning from our afflictions? The Lord is there. So, but David's weary, and he's ready to run. Drama has become the norm for his life, and it's the sad reality that dysfunction has, he's begun to function in the dysfunctional. He thinks chaos is the norm. And 19 times now, Saul has tried to come in. Over this last 10 years, we have recorded that 19 times, from the first time that Saul picked up a javelin and threw it at David to try to kill him, down to killing all of the priests, and now to divorcing his own daughter from David, now the Ziphites are back at it again. They betrayed David before, and they're calling Saul and saying, come and get him, he's over here. It's the second time the Ziphites have done this. One of the things that we can certainly learn from this is don't be a traitor. Don't be a betrayer. Don't betray one another. Don't betray your covenants. Don't betray your promises. You know, David said that this is the man that will dwell in the hill of the Lord. It's he that makes a promise and will swear by it to his own hurt, even if it hurts him. If you've promised to do something, then stick with that promise. You know, you could look at that in terms of your promise. You say, I didn't know it was a promise when I became a member of the church. It's not a promise to me, and it's not a promise to the people around you. It is a promise to God. You see, you say, Lord, I am promising. I am before these witnesses saying, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of your kingdom, of your visible church, and I want to be here. And that's a promise. We don't need to betray those promises. Some of the 
famous betrayers besides the Ziphites in history are Benedict Arnold. Remember Benedict Arnold? It's, still, it's interesting. Benedict Arnold, you know, he was a good man. He was a hard-fighting soldier. But if you read a little bit about Benedict Arnold and why he betrayed his country, he was under a man who was an egomaniac. And Benedict Arnold would win great victories and have great success. And the man that was over him, the general that was over him, would take the credit for it. It appears that he got tired of that. And eventually he betrayed his own nation. And he wound up hanging at the end of a rope because of his betrayal. I would be remiss if I did not mention the greatest betrayer of all time, Judas Iscariot. He betrayed the Lord. You see, betrayal will work on you. And it's working on David. He's being betrayed. So what's holding him up during this? Psalm 54 is what's holding him up. And that's where we'll close our comments this morning. Psalm 54 was written when the Ziphites betrayed David. Now, nobody knows for sure if it was the first time or the second time, but it sure does fit in to me with the second time that they betrayed him. Listen to Psalm 54. This is the psalm that has to do with what's going on, that w- what we're talking about this morning in 1 Samuel. David says to the chief musician of Neganoth, Mashil, a a psalm of David, when the Ziphims, the Ziphites, came and said to Saul, doth not David hide himself with us? Verse 1. Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers are risen up against me. Remember that word stranger connected to a foreigner, a non-Israelite. And here David is applying the word stranger or foreigner to his own people. Why? Because they were betraying him. You see that? For strangers, the Ziphites, are risen up against me and the oppressors seek after my soul. They have not set God before them. Selah. Behold. And here we go. God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. He shall reward evil unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. For he hath delivered me out of all trouble. That's past tense now. And the Lord hasn't delivered him yet. But by faith and by worship, he is able to say that he hath or he has. And he has many times in the past. And mine eye hath seen his desire upon mine enemies. So what's holding all this together for David? How is he able to deal with all this betrayal? His faith. The Ziphites, as I said, were his own countrymen. And he referred to them as foreigners. You know, in David's outward life, he had a constant perils and trials going on. And his faith was holding him together. Notice what he says about God. Verse 4. Behold, God is mine helper. You see, faith is the source of all heroism. You don't have to be just a man or just a woman. You can be a child and live in faith and believe that God is your helper and you are a hero in God's eyes and you're a hero in the eyes of God's people. You see, God is not a myth to David. He's not basis of some article of faith or some creed. We need those. We need those things for sure. But understand that David is looking to God as a person, as an entity, as someone that is there for him. He's not just a myth or some kind of legend. And let me tell you, child of God, you can be a victor in life. You are a victor when you rely upon your faith in God. Now, don't be like folks that say, well, I have faith in my faith. I don't mean that. Faith is the gift from God that he puts in you in the new birth. Use that faith. See, that's what David is doing. He's looking to God as his helper. He's relying on what God has given him, which is faith in God. See, all of the glory goes back to God. See, faith, and one of the commentators says, faith enlarges the horizon of life 
helps you to realize the future and the invisible, feel the presence of God, and rest in His promises, and it transforms common people into heroes. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, as we've spoken of in the past, the hall of faith. You see, David's faith looked to God. David didn't look to his faith or a decision that he'd made for God. David looked to God. That's what his faith pointed to. And he said, behold, God is my helper. What kind of helper is God? That's sort of almost a funny question, isn't it? He's the greatest helper we could ever have. You know, when our, when our family members pass from the scene, ones that we have relied on so tremendously. I think of my dad who has passed off the scene. My mom would certainly affirm this. You know, we, we relied on him. He was such a source of, of counsel and a source of wisdom and an example of, to follow, you know. And then when he passed off the scene, you know, that part of you says, how are we going to make it? We don't have that source anymore. I tell you how you make it in those circumstances. It's because God is your helper. See, God helps you because anything that was good about him, about my dad, was because God had given it to him. So whatever's good about you, whatever's good about me, it's because God has given that to you. David is relying upon his faith. He's lost. He's put his family over there in Moab so he can't go and talk to his dad or his mom. And he's got, he's on the run. He's an outlaw. He's lost his wife. He's been chased and he's being sought after, but he has help in God. When everyone turns against you, when everyone betrays you, God forbid, if everyone were to betray you, you still have help in God. You ever heard people say, well, at least I've got God. What do you mean at least? <laughs> That's all you need is God. Watch what he says now when he says, for he hath delivered me, verse 7. He's still in the midst of this trouble, but in his mind, through faith, he's looking to the helper God who has delivered him in the past, and he says, he hath delivered me. That sounds very similar to what it says over in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, where he talks about, for whom he foreknew, he also predestinated. Whom he predestinated, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also, past tense, glorified. You see, the glorified hasn't happened to you and me yet. The Lord hasn't brought the resurrection upon us yet. It's coming one day, but the Lord's promises are so secure and he is such a helper that you can look at that in terms of past tense that's how God it's as good as done that's how God looks at it because he has the confidence in his son to get the job done and child of grace we should have confidence in the Lord he has delivered you many times and he will deliver you so you can look at that situation and say I believe God is my helper his faith is seeing him through these things one of the commentators says what David says is that his eyes look calmly on his enemies. Are you listening to this? He views his enemies without alarm, for he feels that the shield of God's power and love is cast over him to protect him. Have you ever faced an enemy or a betrayer and you, you actually can look at them without alarm? And because the Lord is your helper, they have no power over you. They have no control over you. You say, well, what if they take my life? That's all they can take is your life. They can't take your soul. They can't take your body away from God. You see, David is looking upon those that are coming after him and saying, God has delivered me. God will deliver me. And God is my helper. Several years ago, I was on a preaching trip and I can't remember well. I want to think it was maybe Knoxville, Tennessee. And I'd taken one or the two of the children with me. They were very young. And we had a tendency on those trips. I would take them somewhere and do something. Like we would go to the zoo or to see something, you know, just to make it a little more interesting than having to sit on a pew for, you know, nine hours a day. And so on this particular trip, I think it was Knoxville, and I think it was Sister Abigail and maybe one of the other 
children, maybe Asher. They were very small. And so we go to this zoo and we went to see the apes. You know, I'm not talking about the little monkeys. I'm talking about the apes, you know, the big apes. And so we were over there by the glass and it was one of those deals where the glass came all the way to the ground. So you could stand toe to toe, you know, with the ape if he comes over there. And everybody's always trying to get him over there, you know, come see the apes. It's a big, you know, glass that you can see through. So we're standing there and one of the kids, whichever child it was, had their back to the ape. And all of a sudden, the ape just went on some kind of crazy tear, and he takes off running towards us at the glass. <laughs> and it made, it made me a little nervous. But at the same time, I was like, this is kind of cool. <laughs> Here comes this ape. He's barreling down through there on all fours, you know, and he's coming. And I, the child, one of the, whichever child it was, didn't really see it coming. And that ape just, wham! You know, he just goes and blasts into the glass. You know, and I, it made me jump back a little bit. But he couldn't touch us, you see? Now, I did think in my mind, I hope that's thick glass. <laughs> the child of God... Satan can't touch you. He may afflict you and he may trouble you and he may cause friction in your life and drama may touch you in your life, but he can't touch you. He is restrained by the glass of God's mercy. He is held back so that he cannot touch you. And here is David looking upon this and he's relying upon the faith that God has given him. He knows that Saul can't touch him. He knows that the 3,000 can't touch him. He knows that the Ziphites who are betrayers, terrible cousins who are betrayers, they can't touch him. Because he's God's anointed. And child of grace, you are God's anointed. And Satan can't touch you. The traitors of this world can't touch you. And I'm out of time. So we'll pick up next time where it talks about the spirit of worship that carried David through these times. But I want to leave you with that little hint of weakness. David is slipping. The drama, the dysfunction, all of these things are causing him to slip and they will, child of God, if you don't keep pushing the faith that God has given you and the worship that God has given you the opportunity to have. If you don't keep pushing those two things, you're liable to go to the land of the Philistines also.